Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter and you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright. You're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey everyone, it's Chad and welcome back to Mission Daily. In today's episode, I sit down with Greg Becker. Greg is the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. So full disclosure here, we're happy customers of SVB and they're not paying us any money. They're not giving us any perks or anything like that for this endorsement. We're just big fans. I used to not even care. It didn't even register what type of bank I was using. Didn't even matter until I got into business and saw the importance of picking the right partners. In our mind, SVB is the future of banking. And if you're not familiar with them, you should be. So around 50% of all venture capital backed tech and life science companies in the U.S. use them. And around 67% of U.S. venture-backed companies with an IPO in 2018 use SVB. So just take a moment to think about that. That's pretty incredible. If you're a business owner, CEO, or maybe you're a venture capitalist that's looking to start a next fund or get a business account, I would recommend them. And we wouldn't mind if you told them we sent you. That's one of the key things to doing business that people forget sometimes is partnerships, referrals. Uh, these things matter a lot and they're how you build up your network. They're how you ensure you're adding value and ensuring that you're adding value is something that we talk about in today's episode. We talk about many things. We talk about how Greg first got started at SVB almost 26 years ago. He originally started leading their venture capital group 
and he went on to become COO of the entire bank and eventually CEO. So when he joined, the bank had around $50 million in assets under management. Now they have around $57 billion. So that is a massive, massive leap. And in this episode, you'll hear some of Greg's thinking, lessons learned, and what information is a part of his daily routine. You'll also hear the biggest mistake of his career and how he overcame it and so much more. Let's jump into today's episode with Greg Becker, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. Welcome back to Mission Daily, everyone. We are really excited. We have an awesome episode today, and I'm going to just get right to it and introduce our guest. Greg, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. So when you meet somebody at a party and they ask you, what do you do? How do you respond? So I usually tell people that I've got the coolest banking job in the entire world, and that usually gets their attention. And then I say why that's the case, because uh, at Silicon Valley Bank, we work with the coolest companies in the entire world. So we don't do entrepreneurship, we don't start companies, but we get to work with the companies that are really changing the world. And you know, you rattle off a few companies over the years that we've worked with and it literally clearly piques their attention. So that's probably the, the easiest way because quite honestly, banking doesn't get a lot of attention. <laughs> and this is a really important point because I didn't have much interest in banking. I had a little bit of a knowledge of it. And when I started this business, The Mission, our uh, first investor, Founders Fund, mentioned you got to work with SVB. That's basically it. So they're the best work with them. And I opened an account and pretty soon I was uh, having people reach out to me, ask what I needed, how things were going and started to get to know people on the team. And that was a whole new, at that point I was viewing banking in a whole new light. So obviously SVB is different. It's not your normal bank. So could you go into a little bit about what SVB is and why it's different? Sure. So it does start with um, kind of what our focus is. We're the only bank anywhere in the world where this is the only thing we do is working with high growth innovation companies. And again, it's it's here in Silicon Valley, but it's all over the US and increasingly around the world. I just got back yesterday from a trip to China. I was in Hong Kong and Shenzhen and Beijing and Shanghai. And through our joint venture, we have offices all over that place. And you know, so really it starts with this maniacal focus on this innovation clients from the startup phase as you were all the way up to larger public companies so that's kind of the the first piece then you think about it the way we're set up is our client service is set up to really engage entrepreneurs in a way that makes it easy to work with Um, that's kind of a second all our products and services are geared toward this innovation economy so everything we do is set up that way and then you take the fact that we bank so many of these innovation companies, this unique knowledge that we gain, we can share with other clients. And as we like to say, if you combine all that together, we like to believe that we increase our clients' probability of success. And so that's that's really what I think is different about SVB. But we are, we are still a bank at the end of the day. And your career at SVB spans over two decades, right? Yeah, 20, 26 years, more than half my life has been at uh, SVB. And uh, I always say, again, I'm very fortunate that I started at SVB at a, at a great time. I was young and, uh, you know, been able to ride this great trajectory over, over 26 years. And, and it's, it's been exciting at day one, and it's still exciting 26 years later. Talk to me a little bit about what day one was like at SVB and how things have grown and, and changed over the years. Were you still servicing entrepreneurs from the beginning? Was it VCs at first? What was that like when you first arrived? 
Yeah, it's a great question because I think people think about what SVB is today and and believe it must have always been that way. And to some extent, it's true. When I think about it, back from day one, we were viewed as a technology-focused bank. But a couple things that people didn't know. At that time, we were really lending money, not to tech companies for the most part. We were lending money to real estate companies and to other traditional industries. And the belief was technology companies had a lot of deposits, a lot of liquidity, and you take that liquidity and then lend it to other companies. Now, what I didn't realize, because I was pretty young and, and naive and didn't understand banking fully at that point, it's only a couple of years out of college, is how much trouble SVB was actually in at the time. <laughs> because they had lent a lot of money to real estate, and again, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, real estate in the Valley went through a really bad downturn. So SVB was, in fact, actually in pretty big trouble. Mm. The market value of Silicon Valley Bank was only $50 million, publicly wow. traded, $50 million. Today, we're about $13, $14 billion. So back then, if I had probably known as much as I should have known, I probably wouldn't have joined them. So very, very different company than obviously it is today. But even the business model was different back then. And at that stage, are you delisted from the NASDAQ or what's going on? Are they threatening to delist the bank or how, how tumultuous is it? At the yeah, time? I think we had a lot of threats at that point. <laughs> I don't know how many there were, but there were a lot. So yeah, part of it was we were still publicly traded, but I don't know the exact details because sure. I was more of a junior person. But my guess is we were probably pretty close to being uh, delisted at that time. And they had brought a new CEO at the time and really changed over the management team. And that was really the catalyst to to start to reinvent uh, Silicon Valley Bank over the years. Greg, one of the parts of your story that I've seen from the outside is you've clearly been an entrepreneur inside Silicon Valley Bank. Could you talk a little about how you got started and maybe one of the first stories that shifted your mindset about what was possible inside a company? Yeah, it's a great way to describe it. And, and that's part of, well, let me start with philosophy. So when you get to Silicon Valley Bank, what I found out from early on is that we've been given this incredible opportunity of being the bank in this technology, life science ecosystem. And it's such a unique place because this market has got, has and will continue to have such growth opportunities and we're well positioned in that space. So I kind of think about our ability to expand and think differently and try new things not as just a growth driver, but almost as an obligation we have to capitalize on this, on what I'll call a gift that we've been given sure. to be in this innovation economy. So uh, at least I always feel more of the pressure driven by capitalizing on the opportunity we've been given as opposed to being forced to drive growth. It's just a subtle difference, but I think it's an important, it's an important driver from my standpoint. So over the years, that's what's driven us to think about going global. When we started going globally and setting up our offices in India and China and Israel and the UK, it was more about if we're the bank for the global innovation economy, don't we have to be around the globe? Mm -hmm. We can't just be in Silicon Valley. We have to think about it on an international basis in addition to all the offices we have in the US. It's our products, our services. So that obligation or that inspiration about where we sit in the ecosystem has really driven a lot of that entrepreneurship. And prior to becoming CEO, obviously you held a number of different roles. You were also the COO. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became COO? Because there are a lot of listeners that are working at tech companies or they are executives and they're thinking about how do I become a C-level executive? So what was your story like there? I know that spans many years, but maybe are there some lessons learned or moments where 
you realized, yeah, I can, I can become an executive here. It, w- it wasn't something I set out uh, to be. And I would say my philosophy has always been curiosity and learning and uh, doing my best in coming up with unique ideas and really pursuing pursuing them. So it's that's been a, a key catalyst throughout my entire career. But I joined Silicon Valley Bank at around 25 years old and you know did a just love doing what I'm doing. And I think I got recognized for that. And it's funny that part of it was driven by a horrible commute. I lived in Pleasanton <laughs> and commuted over to Palo Alto and it just got old, these long drives. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. And I literally just couldn't do it anymore. So I raised my hand and said, hey, is there any interest in having me open up an office outside of Silicon Valley? And at the time, again, I was like 27 years old. I got the chance to open up our office in Colorado. So unlike today, when we set up a new office, we got all this support structure back then. It was, okay, great idea. Go ahead and do it all yourself. So set up the lease, get all the equipment, get everything done. But again, that was a really educational to my, uh, at my, at that age and, and really helped me develop. And I just kept getting more responsibility, being asked to take on more responsibility. So in around 1999, asked to come back and run our venture capital group. And with that idea, we're looking around saying, wow, we have all this access to these venture capital firms. Maybe we should raise money from limited partners and invest that money in venture capital firms in big dollars. So we started SVB Capital, which today is one of the leading, if not the leading venture capital fund of funds. So it was really doing a bunch of different roles, always thinking about what's best for the company and how we can grow the business overall. And you combine that drive with really being fortunate to have being around some great people. Mm. And that just kept getting me in positions where I was getting promoted and taking on more responsibility. And each time when that would happen, I have to admit it was a little bit over my head. It was a little bit of a reach, but that reach for me was always a motivator. It's like, okay, failure is not an option. So what are you going to do? You don't have all the answers. So who can you talk to? Who do you engage with to truly understand uh, what are the best approaches? And so that's been just a philosophy I've had over the years. And again, I, I would say I've been incredibly fortunate. So it sounds like you're a lifelong learner, obviously. And in the Denver experience and opening or in Colorado, opening the new branch office, what was your biggest takeaway from that after you did it successfully? What, when looking back, was uh, the biggest lesson you learned there? You know, there was there were a lot of different lessons. One is it's about building something in relationships in a in a community, right? Silicon Valley, when you think about it, it's such a big market. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to say that you're you're building something where you can see the entire ecosystem. But in Colorado, I was able to do that in in Boulder and in Denver with the venture capitalists there and the companies. I still, to this day, still have uh, great relationships with some of the venture partners that I built relationships with back in the uh, the 90s. So thinking about how you can look at that ecosystem in one market and then figuring out how you apply that to a much bigger market made it a lot easier to think about when I did come back to Silicon Valley, how to do that. So it was was a great experience. It was three years and uh, I really enjoyed it. And when you're going about learning about funds of funds and venture capital and everything, are you primarily reading? Are you talking to the smartest people you know? Are you reaching out cold? What's your learning process like to learn yes. something new? Yes, this is right. All, <laughs> all of the above. And I don't, I don't think it's one. I don't think it's one thing. I think you have to, you know, making a decision, any decision you make, whether it's starting something new or taking a new role, 
it's all about different points of view and you need to get as many data points as you can without making the process too slow to come to the conclusion that you can make, be in a position to make the decision that you think is the best, the best decision. Sure. And it's a combination of finding the right amount of data, but you still have to make a decision. I think people get caught too much in either they go too fast or they're too slow, We're trying to find that right balance in the middle where you have enough information. To me, it's like, can you get 75% of the way there or sure. 80% of the way there? You'll never have 100% certainty that it's the right thing. Right. How do you get far enough along that you're like, yeah, this is, I feel good about this. And so that, that's kind of how you come about or we went about uh, thinking about the fund of funds and building it. So for anyone who's listening that's not familiar with venture capital, how do you describe venture capital and why is it so important to the economy here and the larger United States economy? It's the most impactful capital anywhere in the world and maybe any, from a time perspective, anything in history. And so I'll start with a big statement like that. Sure. So then what is it? Venture capitalists are putting money in the fastest growing, most impactful companies around the world. So when you think about the companies that we're all familiar with, right? Airbnb and Uber and Dropbox and Box, and there's so many of them. Many of those were fueled by venture capitalists. And what is unique about venture capitalists from my standpoint is their ability to support entrepreneurs in their crazy ass ideas. And I mean, they are crazy. They're big and they're bold and they're getting bigger and bolder as time goes on. So you can't take traditional investors and put them into these situations. You need people that can really think think differently. So venture capitalists raise money from limited partners, could be pensions, endowments. They raise that money into a, a fund vehicle. That fund vehicle, then the partners make decisions about what to invest in and how to support them. And it's not just capital, it's introductions and it's connections. It's again, much like we do in banking, it's what they can do to increase those comp- their company's client probability of success. So I'm I'm a, a big believer. I think it's had a huge impact on the U.S. economy. The stat I can recall is that roughly 17% of GDP in the United States is being fueled from venture capital-backed companies. That is a massive number. And you think about the amount of capital, it's really not that much right. to have driven that much GDP. It's still a boutique industry in many ways when we look at the larger finance world, right? Or, Absolutely. I mean, last last year, there was in the US, $113 billion of money invested. And don't get me wrong, that's a lot of money sure. on one hand. But when you look at an economy that's in the trillions of dollars, multiple trillions of dollars, it's still pretty small. So again, it's what I said, it has a huge impact on on the overall economy. And in many cases too, when people hear that, it's not as relatable as hearing, you know, the way products get cheaper over time is through venture capital in a sense. And uh, all the technology we enjoy is most of it's backed by VCs. Do you see venture capital as a force for good in the world? You know, everyone's talking about social impact and everything, which is which is wonderful. But at the same time, it feels like venture capital has a track record now that is increasingly impressive. Where do you see, you know, when you talk to other people about venture capital and stuff, do you get a lot of pushback or do you get people who are starting to recognize that it's it's really important to any economy? I think you're going to get, if you ask 10 people 
who understand the industry, their their perspective on venture capital, you're probably going to end up with 10 different opinions about it. <laughs> and some are going to be very positive and some right. are going to be negative. My personal opinion is it's much more on the positive side, but it's not it's not perfect. It's like sure. any industry. There's there's issues and there's stories that people can point to where there's been challenges and issues and people have, have ended up having a bad situation, gotten taken advantage of by a venture capitalist, et cetera. But my view is they fulfill a critical part of the overall economy. And obviously part of that's self-serving because of what we do. Sure. But also because we get to see it firsthand that right. I, I truly do, truly do believe it. And there's more funds that are coming out right now that are double bottom line where they are investing in things that truly almost have to have a good outcome for society mm-hmm. as one of the catalysts for what, so the business that they're in. So I think there's a lot of positive things that come out of it. Part of the rap that's negative is they have to be really selective, right? Right. And so for every deal they do, they turn down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Well, if you're one of the ones that got turned down, it doesn't feel good. Nobody likes to be turned down. And so that's just part of the model though, because the market's not too empathetic. <laughs> the market's not empathetic, yeah. right? And that's just the way it works. And so I've heard I've heard a knock from that perspective. It's like, wow, they, they're really missing investing. They should be investing in a lot more companies than they do. It's too selective. It's too elitist. And my view is for them to be successful, for them to get continue to raise money, mm-hmm. they have to invest in the best because if they're not investing in the best and getting the returns, they won't continue to get money. Right. They don't continue to get money. They won't be investing in these high growth businesses and generating the economic benefit that a lot of us are are getting. And I could be wrong here, but I think that the stats on new VC firms that succeed, it's actually much harder to be a new VC firm than it is to be an entrepreneur. Would you say that's correct? Or do you agree with that? Uh, I think they're both hard. Yeah, they're different challenges, right? I literally think, I think people can look at successful entrepreneurs and say, wow, look at how successful they are. I want to do that or I want to be that in the same thing in venture capital. I think both are very hard. You know, being an entrepreneur is basically, you gotta have to have thick skin, being turned down so many times, it's amazing. It's kind of crazy. Fall in love with no. Yeah, you (laughs) do. That's a way to describe it. Yeah, good, falling in love with no. And the same thing is true with not every venture capitalist. Some, they have such a skill set and they're able to raise money and they have some early successes and it gives them a platform for success in the future. But, you know, it's, Raising money is is hard. Investors, limited partners can be fickle. So I think they both, I give them both credit for doing what they do. Sure. And could you tell us a little bit about your jump from being COO to CEO of Silicon Valley Bank? What was that like? And what was that? How many years did it take? If you could put that, put a number on it. I know that's hard to estimate. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Before I, I came down uh, here to visit with you, I was meeting with our prior CEO. So my, my predecessor, uh, Ken Wilcox. And you know, again, as I said, as fortunate as I have been of being at SVB and being given this, you know, gift of being part of an organization in a great market, I also feel I've been incredibly fortunate to have an executive who was my sponsor for a big part of my career. So, you know, it's things don't always happen randomly. And, you know, Ken would say that, you know, he picked me out a long time ago and said that, you know, he felt I was going to be a successor. Part of that, I think, is revisionist history um, <laughs> to work out the way it did. A little bit narrative. Uh, uh, a little narrative, but uh, part of it, I think, is 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 true as well. So he was giving me, over time, more and more responsibility. 
and really spent a lot of time with him. And what he would say, one of the things he appreciated most about me is that I wasn't a yes person, which I know was frustrating to him in some cases, <laughs> uh, for sure. But in other cases, I think he was open-minded enough to listen if I or others had a different point of view that he would be open to it. And you know, to me, that's a, you always want that, right? You want somebody to be open-minded. And you know, sometimes he would say, well, I love your opinion, but we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do something different. But his open-mindedness and his support for me was clearly a key part of it. So once you feel that you have an opportunity to share your point of view, and that if you failed at something, as long as it wasn't you know catastrophic, that you could learn from those mistakes and improve, having those opportunities were incredible. And I, I look at my career as, as just a, a, a series of those opportunities, some of which I did really well and didn't make that many mistakes. Others I made mistakes, but I felt I'd learned from them and uh, I've been able to benefit from that. So it was, a, it was definitely a journey. So I've been CEO for almost eight years. I would say Ken and I were talking about me moving to that role probably two to three years before. Wow. And having a mentor is obviously so, so important or several mentors if you're lucky enough. And you mentioned a really interesting strategy there to get a great mentor, which is saying no sometimes and pushing back a little bit. And the best leaders are probably going to respect that and, and welcome that. Are there any other strategies you would recommend for people listening who want to find that mentor where they're currently at inside their company? <laughs> it's hard because it's hard, at least for me, It's it's got to be a two-way street. You have to have people that are looking out for you. Mm -hmm. So there's a randomness to it. And then trying to find that that person. You know, one way to do it is when you're meeting with people that you see that are maybe peers of yours or superior to your a, a manager, try to figure out how you can be helpful to them. Ask them questions about, you know, how you get to the position where you are and just keep, you know, people, when you build those relationships, more than likely, they're going to become curious or vested in you, mm -hmm. right? Because there's going to be a connection there. And so I, I think that's always a good way to do it. It's hard for people to do that in many ways because look, we're all so busy. We're working long hours. And so taking that step back and thinking about your career and asking those questions just takes more time. But it, I think a part of it's being driven by if you're a person that has a lot of curiosity, then you're going to do that naturally. If you do it naturally, it's just obviously by definition easier, but you can still learn it as well. So curiosity is both can be who you are, but I think you can also teach yourself that. And the more curious you are, you're like, oh, this really works. And you will keep replicating it more and more. And the other thing you mentioned there was some mistakes and missteps. When you think about the, you know, I don't want to call them failures, but because they're typically learning lessons, but when you've messed up in your career or when you've corrected a, a leadership flaw or something like that, could you share a story about a time where you recognized, okay, that was a big mess up. I need to change that. And then how you corrected it. Yeah, I, th I think it's uh, really important. And I'll give you the story in a second. Sure. About being transparent when you do make a mistake. The worst thing, and I think about it for myself when I think about my team and, and employees, if anybody is hiding a mistake or trying to make it seem like it's not a, an issue or one of two things happen, at least in the, my thought, one is they're not being truthful about it or they don't know what they're talking about neither which is good and so it makes it so much easier to be transparent about it when things don't don't 
go right. And we have a concept at, at SVB where we call taking 100% responsibility. And it, it's the concept basically is you don't have to be the hero and try to save everyone from problems. You can't point the finger and everyone or be the villain and, and you know say, it's like, oh, I didn't screw up. It was your fault. Take responsibility for it. And if you make a mistake, just own it, learn from it, and move on. And so the story I would give goes back to when I first started at Silicon Valley Bank back in 93. I had lent money to a company. I was a lender at the time. And it was a, a huge amount of money. It was a small amount of money. But one of the things in the process, I forgot to get one document signed that made sure that our collateral included the intellectual property of this company. The company went bankrupt. And I'm thinking, well, at least the intellectual property will be enough money to repay our loan. But in fact, when we got into the situation, we found out that the documents weren't signed. And so we weren't able to be repaid from that intellectual property sale. We took a loss on it, which you never like to do, especially as a bank. It would have been really easy for me to say, well, the attorney who drafted the documents, it's their fault. They forgot to include this. Or our internal loan operations made a mistake because they didn't check to see if that document existed. But for whatever reason at the time, I came in and I walked in and I said, I made a huge mistake. I own this. I didn't get this document signed. And I remember our general counsel at the time, she looked at me and she said, that's, that's actually, I really respect that. The fact that you didn't point fingers and you could have easily done that, I truly respect you for doing that. And it was probably her, the way she described it, didn't make it the loss any better. But for me, it was one of those aha moments where being transparent when you do make a mistake made it kind of easier to deal with. And you said like, okay, what am I going to do next time to make sure it doesn't happen? But I think just something like that, when you learn from your mistakes, uh, and are transparent. And when you do make a mistake, you you just own it. Mm. And what are you going to learn from it, I think is a really, really important lesson for people to uh, to walk away with. I know that that really, for me, held a, a deep learning that I, I really have never forgotten. And I'm sure that deepened your relationship with the general counsel, probably. like uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so as we start to move to the ending of all our interviews, we'd like to ask a series of rapid fire questions. Sure. So if you're ready for it, let's jump into yep, it. Yep, let's go. So favorite book you've read in the last year? It could be fiction, it could be nonfiction. So I don't read a lot of books, I have to admit. I'll give you a book that was uh, from a few years back. It's called The sure. Bo the Boys in the Boat. Okay. If you ever read, have you ever heard that book? It was a great, great book. Any, what was the biggest takeaway from the book? Biggest takeaway is how important it is for the team to row together. Obviously, that's the important about sure. rowing, but the difference is when truly everybody is on the same page, the speed by which you can move is almost unbelievable. It's life-changing. And I've used that metaphor a few times at the bank where that speed that you feel when everyone's rowing in the same direction, that that really is going to allow us to be successful. And if you're not reading a lot, are you listening to podcasts? Are you doing any uh, audio or anything like that? Well, definitely your podcast is you know, <laughs> top on the list. Thank you. But I just do a lot of information reading. So a lot of news reports. I'd say it's a lot of quick clips. Um, sure. 
you know, news stories and things like that. So not a big, not a big reader. Wall Street Journal, The Economist, what are you subscribing to? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Both of them. Yep. Um, outside of those, are there any other uh, more niche information sources that you recommend, whether they're paid newsletters or anything like that? I have a data feed that pulls information from like, here's all the places I want to pick up data from. So it's Bloomberg, it's CNBC, it's, you know, one sh- one thing I'm sure you subscribe to is American Banker. Um, so it's a uh, I've missed the last couple. You know? <laughs> so there's there's a whole variety of things. I, I don't look at just one or even two. So staying up on industry news is obviously incredibly important for the work you do. I mean, a lot of times I think people don't really value how important it is to have an informational advantage in in business. How much time do you spend a day going through the data feed? If you had to estimate it. So it's it's a combination of the data feed, which I spend, you know, maybe thirty minutes to an hour on. But it, to me, the most important part is actually the engagement with our employees and our clients. When I, as I said, I just got back from China yesterday, and I was in four different cities, and it was meeting with employees, hearing about what's happening on the ground. Number one, number two, meeting with companies where you hear what they're experiencing firsthand. It's meeting with investors, understanding what they're investing in and the challenges and things that are going on. All those things combined give you a point of view. And I believe you have to have as many data points as you as you have. And one of the many things I love about my job is because I started out in banking, lending money early on. So I'm a, I'm a banker at heart. I love spending time with clients and just understanding what they're doing. And that both gives me information that is useful, but is also incredibly satisfying in my in my job. Because reading a news report is one thing, but hearing the story from people on the ground is an entirely different thing. Absolutely. Um, so I, that seems, seems to be like a pretty big part of your job, which is going traveling the world, meeting with people firsthand. Outside of China, what new area are you excited about SVB expanding in? Are there any other areas that you're particularly bullish on? So this past year, we just opened up our office in uh, Germany uh, and in Canada. Uh, So very excited about those markets, Uh, excited about what we're doing in Israel. Israel is such an amazing place for entrepreneurship. I love, it's probably my my favorite place to go uh, visit on on business because in a very small country, a small area, you get to kind of see so many different uh, things what's happening in London and the UK is, is also incredible and, and China. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's one place. It's actually kind of excitement all, everywhere. it's excitement, excitement yeah. everywhere. And then as far as the industries go, again, it's across the board, whether it's autonomous vehicles, machine learning, AI, and anything related to healthcare. I think the innovation in healthcare is incredible as well. So again, as I said, that's what's so great about this job. You get this incredible lens to look at the entire innovation economy. And I think that's the best part. I love it. And if you do have time to kick back and relax a little bit, are you watching Netflix, HBO? Do you have a favorite series maybe that you've watched in the last year? I don't I don't watch a lot of TV, um, so not that much. So for me, when I'm out and I'm not working, I'm a big cyclist. I love, I love biking and that's probably where I get I see more. the SVB bike logos all over the roads in the weekends. Yes, so. exactly. That's probably part of my doing. We sponsor the uh, number one women's cycling team, uh, Team Tipco, Silicon Valley cool. Bank. And, you know, it's just a great, incredible group of women and uh, really share our same values. So, yeah, that's probably where I spend time when I'm not working. 
and the dreaded smartphone uh, challenge. So are you attached to your phone? Are you, do you put it down at night? And uh, are there any apps on the home screen that are like your go-to apps? What's your, what's your smartphone strategy? Uh, it's probably not a great strategy because I've got an Apple Watch recently. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of always with me, but I, I love it. My sure. view is for, for my role, and I think a lot of people, it's like you're always on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do keep connected uh, to it, but I also, at least my own opinion, other, <laughs> others may disagree. I think I do a pretty good job of, of being able to shut it down when I need to, to shut it down. And, you know, I'm blessed with a lot of great kids and an incredible wife. And to me, that's the most important thing, which is at the end of the day, we're going to be, you know, be looking 10 years from now, whatever the time period is, 15 years looking back and, you know, you'll feel really good about your job, but clearly the most important thing is your family and what you've done with them and how you've engaged with them. So I try to keep that smartphone away as much as possible, especially when I'm around them. Sure. And uh, final question, if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of advice or maybe a call to action about how to succeed in business while also having a family and keeping that those relationships very healthy, what would you say? So I'll talk about this related to uh, kids. And I know you have a a young 11, 11, 11 months 11 month old yeah. uh, and i th- think from my standpoint uh, at least what my kids have told me one of the things they they really appreciated over the years and they're in college is that from a very early age i've engaged them in what i do my daughter when i remember when she was in seventh or eighth grade uh, she was telling me how uh, what she loved about how our relationship is that she knew exactly what i did and she said none of my friends know <laughs> or very few of them know what their parents do. Yeah. Uh, but she knew exactly what I what I did, and my son the same way. And so when I would travel on some of my international trips, I would bring him along, bring him into the office. I would review when I did a lot of speeches over the years. I would actually, even they were very young, I would give them the speeches. And it's so funny how kids are like, "Wow, Dad, that is really boring." Uh, <laughs> or, but you, it, what it teaches you is how to tell stories. Because yeah. stories, even if they don't fully understand the context, it's a story. And at that, those young ages, they understood what was boring and what wasn't. And I learned from it. So that, that connectivity between what you do and engaging your kids in that, I think is something that is a lesson that everyone can learn. Awesome advice. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, Chad. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.